0: Well, it's good to be with everyone this morning. Uh, I am John, uh, not Dan, Um, so I'm sorry if that disappoints you, Uh, but it is what it is this morning. We are going to look at Acts 17 this morning. Acts 17, verses 1 through 15 will be the text that we'll be looking at this morning as we continue our study in the book of Acts. So you can look at your bulletin or open your Bible. follow along and hear now the reading of God's word from Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And Jason has received him, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed, not a few of the Greek women of high standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Paul or for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is still as applicable for us today as the day in which it was written. I pray that your spirit would work in our lives, that we would see the truth of your scriptures and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I remember with a bit of shock one day, on a Saturday in 2013, John and I were driving I think it was over the Maumel Bridge, and she turned to me, and she said that Joe Montana had died. I turned to her, and I asked, what, are, are you sure? Really? And she showed me Facebook post after Facebook post of people saying, RIP Joe Montana, and even a story from the Global Associated News, which read like this, pro football player Joe Montana is confirmed to have died in a single vehicle car accident. One other male passenger in the 2012 BMW driven by Joe Montana has been transported to a local California hospital and is reported to be in serious condition. A spokesperson for the California Highway Safety Authority indicated that wet road conditions are likely the cause of the accident. Drugs and alcohol do not appear to have played any part in this accident. Team spokespersons could not be reached for comment at the time. Now, something didn't seem quite right in my overly skeptical brain. Maybe it was just the fact that the great Joe Montana would not die in a car accident. He would go some other way. But for a few hours, everything seemed to confirm it. Twitter confirmed it. Facebook confirmed it. Even local news outlets started to report this story. It was everywhere. But then a few hours later, word emerged that Joe Montana was indeed alive and well in his home in California, Uh, and this global associated news, which sounded so authoritative and real, was actually just a fake parody news account that had set itself up. Now, this was the first major big national social media hoax that I remember that so many people believed all at the same time. Now, that's a really stupid story, but it raises the larger question of how do we know what's true? There are outright lies, which we're often able to pick up on pretty quickly given our our knowledge, our intuition, or with a quick assist from from the Googles. Then there's the more subtle twisting of truth that we see nowadays to prove a particular point, something that we've come to know as misinformation. But there just isn't the perception of knowing what's true. There's the way in which we receive truth as well. Do we believe it? Do we deny it? Do we fight against the truth? Or do we just ignore it? In today's text, we see Paul in two different cities, and he's in the middle of his second missionary journey, with the cities each having different reactions to the truth, both in the perceiving or understanding of the Scripture, and then how they reacted to it, specifically how they received the truth as it pertains to Jesus Christ. If we think we live in a pluralistic landscape that's difficult to preach and teach truth to, imagine what Paul was facing as he rounded the corner and came into Greece, The citizens of Thessalonica and Berea worshiped the the customary group of Greek, Roman, and Egyptian gods. I'll spare you from reading the full list that they found inscriptions to, but there's well over 18, in addition to the Roman benefactors and emperors that they also worshiped. These cults were well integrated into the daily life of the city with people being able to hold to the worship of multiple gods. So they just combined several god names together and they'd have their own group. So this was a multifactorial thing. And in America while we may not see inscriptions and shrines to so many religious cults as this we so certainly in America have our own idols and things we make false gods of in society today and there's some very large stadiums built to some false gods <laughs> but today I want us to see three things from this passage first of all the authority of the scripture second the continuity of the gospel and third the constancy of the opposition now, this passage opens with what we see is very customary of Paul as he, as he comes into a new city. He goes to the Jews first. He finds a city with a large Jewish population and goes into the synagogue, and he'll be there with them for, for three Sabbaths. Now, we don't know if he's there just there on the Sabbath days or if he's there during the week as well. And he starts a dialogue with the Jews there. The first city has to be Thessalonica, which is on the very northeast corner of the Greek peninsula. And then the second city, which he was forced to flee to, was Berea, which is about 45 miles due west of Thessalonica, straight north of Athens, if you know anything about the geography of Greece. So, for those G25 who are taking notes, our main characters, the first thing on there, Paul and Silas are gonna be our main characters in the story today. But the first thing I want us to see today is the authority of Scripture. We see in verse 2 and 3 that Paul reasoned and explained and proved to them from Scripture in Thessalonica. We see in verse 11 that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. Now, think about this for a moment. What scripture was Paul using to explain these things about Jesus Christ? Paul might have written the letter to Galatians a few years earlier on his first missionary journey, but he was in the middle of a second missionary journey with most of his writing still to come. According to the best dates that we have, the first gospel hadn't even been written yet. So there was no such thing as the New Testament. The scriptures Paul was using to to reason and to explain the truth about Jesus Christ was the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament scriptures. Now, one of the things that's been very disturbing to me, and I know many others in, in, in recent years and this happens in evangelical, Bible-believing churches, is a downplaying or even a critical tone that's given to the Old Testament. I won't name names, but one prominent pastor famously uh, said it was time for the church to, quote, unhitch from the Old Testament. Now, in fairness, I listened to his full sermon, And I listened to a 45-minute interview in which he tried to explain what he meant by this, it's time for Christians to unhitch from the Old Testament. And after listening to that, I can this much see his point, but I can't disagree with him more. Listen to what Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from a childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What is the scripture that Timothy grew up with that is able to make him wise to salvation in Jesus Christ? What is Paul referring to? It is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is able to make us wise to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then the famous verse we use, all scripture is breathed out by God. We talk about this for inspiration. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this is the most common thing we, verse we use to prove our belief in the doctrine of inspiration, and I wholeheartedly believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But we often fail to take time to read the instructions around it and understanding what this is referring to. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. It's profitable for your teaching. It's profitable for your proof and correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness, that you, a man of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Old Testament is of use for believers even still today as it was then. I would contend that it's to their spiritual detriment for a Christian to unhitch from anything that has so much power in its ability. Unless you think I'm picking on one particular pastor, I'll give another example of a much older, more fundamental pastor who has a large church and seminary in, South, in uh, Southern California. I was listening to a thing, and he was teaching his congregation about Bible study. And he was making the point that you know they need to read the New Testament constantly, read it about five times a year. That's where you get your instruction for living. That's where you spend most of your time. Now, the Old Testament... You read that that's just history. You read that to get the history of what's gone on and that's that's kind of that's kind of your background, but you just read straight through that. You can't do that. The Old Testament is foundational to this. So what does this passage in Acts teach us about the consistent truth of scripture? It teaches us that it all points to Christ. It all points to the future saving work of the Messiah and establishes the need for the Messiah that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah. It's been estimated that Jesus fulfilled over 300 messianic prophecies in his life and in his death. This is how Jesus, when he was was resurrected and, and was speaking to those around the tomb, was able to start with Moses and all the prophets in Luke 24 and teach concerning himself. Think back to Stephen's sermon that we went through in Acts 7 before he was martyred. What did he do? He marched them through the Old Testament and showed how it pointed them to Christ. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, or the Ethiopian eunuch would one section about a suffering servant from Isaiah, and Philip was able to take that and then going through the scriptures, explain that this was Christ and the one who must die. Paul, on the road to Emmaus, or technically Saul at the time, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He knew the scriptures. What was explained to him that he hadn't seen before? His eyes were opened that what the Scriptures spoke of was Christ and the future atoning work of Christ. We must not neglect the Scriptures, Old or New Testament, that have been given to us. They both come to us as the fully inspired and fully inerrant Word of God. That's why we as a church alternate preaching from books from both the Old and the New Testament. Believe me, it's a whole lot easier to take one of the epistles and preach a nice, clean, three-point sermon that's alliterated from the New Testament. But the hard work of understanding, of looking for, of seeing Christ in the Old Testament is so worth it. It's so rich for your life. This is why we are called to study the scriptures. The Jews in Thessalonica had the same scriptures that the Bereans did, yet many refused to see Jesus as the Messiah. The Bereans searched through the scriptures, examining as Paul proclaimed Jesus as Messiah and believed because they went back to the scriptures. All of scripture has authority in our life to bring us to Christ and to build us up in Christ. Second, I want us to see the continuity of the gospel. In verse three, Paul says, explains and proves that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah or or the Christ as it would be in Greek. This is the same gospel we preach today. The gospel hasn't changed. This is the same gospel we preach. But we would generally appeal to the New Testament. Maybe we'd take people through the Romans road or we would take them through accounts in the gospel or something like that. But what would Paul have preached and explained to them to show them from the beginning that Christ's death and resurrection was necessary, that Christ was the Messiah? Now, Dan talked about covenants last week in relation to baptism, and, and I'm going to go into them just a bit more, as I believe walking through the Old Testament in terms of covenants is one of the things that shows the continuity of the gospel that Paul might have preached. Now, I am not Paul. I will give you that. But what Paul might have preached as he went through this, looking at this, looking at the scriptures through a covenant framework. Now, one thing to remember, and I'm not gonna sing it, is that God always establishes his relationship with people through his, coven, through his covenants. God always establishes a relationship with his people through covenants. God comes to man and initiates and establishes the terms of that relationship. And I think we must see the continuity of the scripture as established through God's covenants because they all point to the coming of a future redeemer and the necessity of his work, namely his life, his perfect sinless life, his death and resurrection. Well, we start at the very beginning with God creating the world in six days out of nothing. And when God created man, he declared the creation to be good. But he looked around and said, it's not good for man to be alone. So I'll make a woman for him. After this, creation was declared to be very good. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply and have dominion over all the creatures and over everything that was in the garden. But there was one condition. There was one thing that they were not supposed to do. They were not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because in the day that they did, they would surely die. Now, we often refer to this as the covenant of works or the the covenant of life. Either one works for that. A covenant of works or a covenant of life. God promised life and blessing of all of the garden to Adam and Eve if they did not do one thing. Don't eat from that tree. You can have everything else, but don't eat from that one tree. Yet of their own free will, we know that they sinned against God by eating the fruit that they were forbidden to. Even declaring the punishment for this sin, God starts the terms of a new relationship with mankind, entering into a covenant of grace, which is the overriding theme of the remainder of the Bible. that's still in effect today. In Genesis 3:15, we have this promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see the first promise of a future redeemer from the power of Satan and from the power of sin. Physical death now faced Adam and Eve, but there was a promise of a spiritual life and looking forward to God's provision of a redeemer in grace. Paul references this in Romans 5. As by one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all sin. This is what we mean by original sin. Inherited sin from Adam, and the sin of Adam imputed to us with him as our representative head. We also have the sins which we commit personally. Thus, we are all sinners before God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, a verse that we may quote as part of the Romans road, which is actually an Old Testament passage. We are spiritually dead before a holy God. Thus, we need someone to act on our behalf. We need a redeemer to give us life with a holy God. In Romans 5.17, Paul again says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, the covenant of grace progressively unfolds throughout the saving of the righteous man, Noah, and his family through the ark. And a covenant is established with Noah, the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9, where God promises never to destroy all living things through a flood. And he gives the sign of a rainbow in the sky as a reminder of that promise. The creation mandate is given to Noah and his family again to be fruitful and multiply. Yet the world chooses to rebel against God again and building a tower to make their name great. But God chooses a man and comes to him and says, I will make your name great. And that man is Abraham. In Genesis 12, we see the promise of land. We see the promise of offspring. And we see the promise of a blessing to him. But not just a blessing for himself, but a blessing that all the world would be blessed through him and through his descendants. We're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, a theme that Paul will pick up on in Romans over and over again. This covenant was repeated again in Genesis 15 in a more formal way, often in the way that covenants were ratified. Parties would take animals and they would, they would split them in half and they would lay them down in, in order. And the parties for taking place in the covenant would walk through the severed animals and they would promise that this would happen to them if they broke the covenant. But something very interesting and something very important happens in this in Genesis 15. God causes a sleep to fall upon Abraham. Abraham does not participate in this covenant ceremony, God Himself passes through these severed animals making this a unilateral covenant, that God is making a promise by himself to himself of what he will do in giving this blessing and this promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. The promises and the certainty of the covenant covenant rested upon God himself. Abraham did receive God's blessing, which was passed to Isaac, and then Jacob, and then his sons, and then Joseph, and through the betrayal of his brothers to put him in a position that was one day able to save all of Israel. We have the Passover of Israel out of Egypt, where the sacrifice of an animal and blood painted on the doorpost saved all the firstborn of Israel, while all the firstborn of Egypt perished. We should not overlook the significance of the Passover. God reminds the people of this again and time and time again, but it is the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. The Israelites exit Egypt, they pass through the Red Sea and where the Egyptians are destroyed. And in Exodus 19 through 24, God lays out his covenant with the Israelites and gives them a law through which they can have fellowship with him, for him to be their God and for they to be his people. And all of Israel responded in Exodus 19. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Of course, we know that didn't happen very much. Israel very often wandered and strayed. Yet God was faithful to them because of his promise and his steadfast love. The law was given not as a means of salvation, but as a way to distinguish his people from the surrounding nations of the area and to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation before God. The covenant provided conditional blessings and curses that would either be for their prosperity in the land that God was leading them to or for judgment in the land once they were there. Yes, sacrifices were part of the ceremonial law, but they all pointed to the future need of a once and for all sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Hebrews 10 states this regarding the law. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, His sacrifices covered their sins, allowed them to have fellowship with God, but it was not perfect. It did not allow them salvation. They were still saved under the same covenant of grace by grace through faith looking forward to Christ, just as we are saved by grace through faith looking back to the work of Christ. We then see the covenant of grace sharpening it a little bit in focus in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. David wants to build a house to God, and God says, no, you're not the one to do it, but I will build you a house where we see one would come out of David's lineage that would inherit his throne and would reign forever and would be the mediator of blessing to all of the nations through the Davidic line. This is very important. One scholar writes, "'This covenant is the nucleus "'around which the messages of hope "'proclaimed by Hebrew prophets "'of later generations were built.'" This is what you read when you read through most of the prophets, referring back to this Davidic covenant of the promise of one to come that would be the mediator of blessing, that would restore the kingdom back to Israel. And this is certainly true. We read of one who will walk in righteousness, restore the throne to the house of David, and reign and rule over the temple. In every prophetic book we read, there's a message of judgment to either Israel or Judah, to the surrounding nations but there's also a promise of a future restoration through a suffering servant, as we read in Isaiah. This all culminates in Jeremiah 31, where we see the promise of a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, Mosaic Covenant, "'My covenant that they broke, "'though I was their husband,' declares the Lord. "'For this is the covenant that I will make "'with the house of Israel after those days,' "'declares the Lord. "'I will put my law within them, "'and I will write my law on their hearts, "'and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. "'And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor "'and each his brother, saying, "'Know the Lord, for they shall all know me "'from the least to the greatest,' declares the Lord. "'For I will forgive their iniquity,' and their sins I will remember no more. This is what the Jews were waiting for. They were waiting for this Redeemer, this Deliverer, someone who were to restore the kingdom back to Israel on the Davidic throne, the Messiah that would throw off the conquering nation of the Romans. And finally, the initiation of the new covenant in Matthew 26, at the first communion where Christ said, Now as the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the transgression of sins. Christ's suffering and death, as fully God and fully man, and two distinct natures without any mixture, confusion, separation, or dilution, was needed to fulfill all that was required, all the righteous requirements of the law were fulfilled in Christ. In Hebrews 9, starting in verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Unless we forget the resurrection of Christ, Christ through his resurrection conquered death, providing for our resurrection in the future. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In Christ, we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The story of Scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is a continuous story of redemption. The Old Testament pointing to the saving work of Christ and the New Testament bearing witness to Christ's work and how we should live as Christians in response to what Christ has done for us, we as new people of God. But God's work isn't done yet. He's coming again to judge their unrighteous, to conquer the final enemy death, and to bind Satan forever, to usher in a new heaven and earth where we would be perfectly blessed and the enjoying of God forever. Finally, lastly and quickly, I want us to see the constancy of the opposition. In Thessalonica, we see a mob of of jealous Jews getting the authorities involved by claiming that they were promoting a king other than Caesar, something that would get the Roman authorities involved. These same Jews, when they hear of what is happening in Berea, then come there to stir up another mob from which Paul had to escape. And we know this to be true. Whenever the true gospel of Christ is proclaimed, there will be opposition. Christ told us this while he was alive. If they persecuted him, they would persecute his followers. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Opposition shouldn't surprise us. We should not shy away from opposition, but I do wanna make a clear distinction. There is the true message of Christ that will always be offensive to the natural man because it, it confronts their sin. It confronts their comfort. It confronts their idols and their established ways. And the natural man cannot do something against his nature and respond to Christ. But there's also the message and the manner and the way in which we present that. And I want to make sure that our manner is appropriate. And if we are to offend, it's we offend with the message, not with the way in which we share Christ and present ourselves. So I want you all to take home one big message this morning. This is number three on your G25 worksheet. One big message this morning. The message of Christ is in all of Scripture. The message of Christ is in all of Scripture. All of the Old Testament points forward to Christ, and all of the New Testament points back to him. Its contents have been proven true time and time again, no matter how many times it's been questioned. And I do want to leave you with this challenge. Maybe you've never read through the Old Testament. Maybe you've tried, and you've just gotten bogged down. And I'll be honest with you, it's not the easiest thing to read at times. Be honest. Be honest. You don't need to set a timeline to try to read through it in a whole year or, or six months or whatever it is, but it is worth taking time to read through it. Find a good study Bible. I think my favorite study Bible out there is the ESV study Bible. I think it has great notes. It has great charts. It has great descriptions. It's something that's very helpful if you really want to try. and Berea. I'll close with this one Psalm. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grand story of redemption. We thank you that you purpose from eternity past to to bring a people to yourself and to save us. We thank you for the work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you for what that means for us. I pray that we would take this, that we would study the scriptures diligently, uh, that we would follow them, and that uh, we would give you all the glory and that we would live as your people in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.